The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, many of you know that we are in the middle of uh, sign-ups, registration for uh, Imagine. You've heard about it. You've gotten letters about it. Uh, you've seen maybe signs, different places, and banners. We want to continue to tell you more about what it is and to ask you to sign up. Uh, we're looking for our church to go through this together so that we are learning what it means to follow God in every area of our lives, including stewardship, not just stewardship of money, but, uh, but of everything that God has given us. And so to do that, I've asked Didi if she will to come. Didi Renew is part of the team that's putting together Imagine, and uh, she just wants to share a little bit of testimony with you just about her journey and uh, ask you to sign up. Thank you, Scott. Well, good morning, church. Well, this morning, what I want to share with you is um, one aspect only of the Imagine process we're going to go through here in the next few months, and it's about the celebration, the celebrating that we're going to do throughout this whole process. And Psalms 145.7 says that they will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. So as we go through Imagine, we are going to share our testimonies We're going to share our victories. We're going to encourage one another, and we're going to lift one another up in praise. And one of the first celebrations I want to share with you this morning, um, we have 28 families that have signed up so far. So that is wonderful news, and we're so excited, and we're looking forward to lots of more people signing up. So please be encouraged that those of you in the body today are excited and looking forward to this journey. Well, one of the things that I want to share with you this morning is actually my personal celebration of the things that God has done in my life and the abundant goodness that he has bestowed upon me. Like many of you probably, you were in church as a child. Your parents brought you to church. At the age of seven, I actually walked the aisle by myself and asked Christ to come into my heart. And, you know, you're young, you really don't understand things, you know, life kind of goes on. And um, by the age of 12, I actually had a pretty traumatic experience in my own life and the family of my, in the life of my family. We lost my mother at the age of 12. I was the age of 12. Believe it or not, that was actually 36 years ago today. So there's absolutely no question that God has a purpose in our lives, and he had a purpose for my life, that I would be standing before you today and that I would be sharing the experiences of my life. Well, my mom was actually the reason that we were in church. So after she passed away, there wasn't much church life. Um, So fortunately, by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, He placed people in my lives, like my aunt and uncle, who were godly people, and they shared the love of God with me. And they always told me that there was a reason why God took my mother from my life at such a young age. And then he placed friends who had mothers and fathers and just other people throughout my life who were, gave me that, that love that I so needed. And so life kind of goes on, you know, and I get involved in activities of school. I was fortunate enough, even though my family was very poor, and um, we were evicted when I was a high school, a senior in high school, and lost our home, our land, 
We were on food stamps. I mean, life was pretty tough. But by the grace of God, I was able to go to college. I, I, I you know, applied for Pell Grants and actually was blessed to be able to graduate from college. And, you know, again, life kind of goes along. Again, there's not much church activity. I don't know if you're hearing a theme here, but I'm just kind of going along. And I'm thinking I'm living the life that I should be. I get married. My husband was actually in the Air Force, and we were all over the country moving around. Very, very mobile life for those of you who have lived that. You know what I mean. Um, Well, I kept feeling the tug of God and the Spirit in me, wanting me to get involved in church. So when we were stationed up in Montana... I actually, we got involved in the church, started doing things, started singing, started Sunday, you know, going to Sunday school. And, um, well, you know, thought we needed to join the church. So we went and we talked to the pastor. Now, keep in mind, I really had not been a member of a church since a very young age. So I really didn't know what it meant. So the pastor explained really what it meant, all the guidelines, the rules, that little thing over there about tithing. Well, that kind of struck a chord with me. I didn't really, you know, really didn't understand what that was all about. You see, I'd never tithed my entire life. I'd never given back to God what he had bestowed upon me. So I was a little uneasy about it. Lo and behold, that Sunday, what do you think he preached on? He preached on tithing. Well, that really just, Satan got a hold of me. And I left the church. And for many years, I did not. It was almost like, I was thinking about this yesterday, it was like there was a void. I had this void in my life. Lots of things went bad, lots of things went wrong, and the marriage surely went wrong, and it ended in divorce. And so it ended up, I came back home thinking, well, this is where I need to be. This is where my family is. This is where the love of those around me will lift me up will bring me out of these these barren years that I have been living in. So, of course, things just didn't go the way I expected them to. I mean, the family really wasn't there. They they struggled with even what I had gone through myself. They had their own pains and sufferings that they were dealing with. And then one of the biggest um, traumatic events occurred. I was having some medical issues and... The doctors told me that I couldn't have children. Well, I knew I had not been able to conceive in my first marriage. That was it. That was was the bottom. I I hit bottom. You know, what have I got? What have I got left? I've got a failed marriage. I've tried it on my own. Nothing's worked out. I don't know how to do this. You know, um, I can't even have children. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Who am I? And I I was distraught. I was despaired. Um, Maybe some of you have been there. Maybe some of you are there right now. Well, you know, I I was so, I just had no hope. I didn't know what I was going to do. And and some of you may have contemplated this before. And I just thought, well, well, what else is there to do? You know, um, it's time. I've just had it here on this earth. and, And Lord, I just don't know what to do. But you know what? That spirit that had been in me when I accepted the Lord at the age of seven, he was there and he said in that quiet, still voice, I'm here. I love you. And I alone can save you. And he did. 
And I got down on my knees and I just turned it over to him and said, Lord, I'm tired of the struggling. I'm tired of trying to go this road on my own. And it's up to you from this point on. And, it, you know, you hear about those kind of stories and it was like a, a, a switch. You know, the change in my heart because all of a sudden I had this hunger and I had this desire all these years of, of the running and the turning from him and, and just trying to deny that he did not, didn't have a place in my life. Suddenly I wanted him. I wanted him more than anything. And so I got into counseling. I wanted to figure out how did I get in this mess? What led me here? So I got into some pastoral counseling I got involved in the church, and wouldn't you know, what do you think is the first thing he convicted me of? All that I gave you, Dee, Dee all that I gave you belongs to me. And so I began giving back, and I had a very meager salary at that time, and I'm on it on my own. And so I started giving, and it was a little bit at first. And then I started giving to what I felt like God was calling me to do. And then I started saving all these things that you're going to learn as you go through Imagine. All those, all those simple things about giving back to what is, what is God's. He, things began to grow. My funds began to grow out of nowhere. I had the same salary, but I was able to save and do. And, and you know, my engine failed. I was able to pay and have the engine replaced without having to borrow any money whatsoever. So, you know, I, I look back and I call this, like many people, it was my resurrection. I had died to myself and only the Lord was able to save me and resurrect me from the life that I was living. And so through that, I, you know, I was praying too. I didn't want to end up in another failed marriage. I wanted to know what mistakes I'd made, and I wanted a godly man. So I prayed that God would bring a godly man into my life, and he did. And he's here, Dane. You know, we, we came, when we came together, Dane too came from a broken past. His marriage had ended in divorce. He too had gone through counseling, and he was seeking God's word for that new direction in his life. So when he brought us together, we were both healing. And through the word of God, we have been able to go along this journey together. And in fact, once again, no coincidence, tomorrow is our 13th anniversary. So um, I want to just celebrate. I'm here today to celebrate the victories of what God has done in my life, all the things that um, he has blessed me with, and I know that he has blessed many of you with and that he will bless you with as we go through this process. So this is my story, and Ethan, you know, a couple weeks ago we sang Blessed Assurance, and I have been singing that song in my head for the last two weeks. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. So what is your story? As we go throughout um, imagine here in the next few months. I want you to celebrate with us, and I want you to share. Um, we're going to be throughout um, during each week, and we break up into our small groups. I want you to jot down what your story is, any successes, victories that you've had, and if you're willing to share a testimony, you don't have to get up here and do it on stage, but we're going to be doing videos as well, then I would ask that you, you know, let us know that that is something you would like to do as well. I started with Psalms, and I want to end with Psalms 138.3. On the day I called, you answered me. 
You made me bold with strength in my soul. May you be bold also. Dee Dee. It's good to hear the stories of God's grace in one another's lives, isn't it? Oftentimes we see each other, we think we know one another, but you probably learn things about you probably learned things about Didi today that you didn't know, and uh, all of us have a story, and we're not living our own lives to our own glory, but God has been gracious to bring us into His story, and it's good to hear those. I was a little concerned when she said she prayed for a godly man, Dane. I, I, I thought she was going to say, but instead, God sent me Dane. You know, but <laughs> I was glad that she went ahead. You know, but um, if you will today, turn with me to First Corinthians chapter thirteen. That's where we'll be today. We have been walking through 1 Corinthians together, um, and we're going to stick with this today. Now, many of you know 1 Corinthians 13 is, uh, is the love chapter. Uh, it, uh, it is largely about love, and uh, this is what I saw it as when I was growing up. When I was a teenager growing up. I almost went over to my office. I've got it over there. My old Bible that I used to carry when I was a teenager um, is kind of worn and tattered, uh, and it's sitting up there on my shelf. And I could open my Bible to this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a teenager, I was obsessed with this chapter. Uh, I I would sit in my room, and I would pour over this chapter because I thought this chapter, the love chapter, was about romantic love. And as a 13- or 14-year-old kid, I was dreaming of this woman that someday God would send my way. And I would read all about it, and I would think, well, this is what she's going to be. And if I meet somebody, and she's not patient, and she's not kind, and she's not these things, then she's off the list, right? And I would sit in my room with my two-sided skater mullet, singing along to Randy Travis songs, and, and I would pour over this chapter. I would sing songs like Always and Forever and Forever and Ever, Amen, Written in Stone, It's a Love Without End, Amen, and I would sing all these songs, and I would pour over this, and I would think, God, send me this. God, give me this. I was a sad teenager. Uh, (laughs) Spent a lot of lonely nights as a teenager, you know. Looking back, I see the reasons for that, but anyway... I never realized that this chapter had a context of its own. That this chapter was not written specifically for Scott Ogle in the way that I wanted to manipulate it. I couldn't take this chapter, any of the Word of God, and try to just force-fit it into my life. Instead, what I've realized later on looking back is that the Word of God is written so that we might come up under it. So that we might submit ourselves and to say, I will bow to the authority of God in the Word of God. Not the other way around. And sadly, I I don't think I'm alone. Maybe maybe I'm alone in the whole two-sided skater mullet Randy Travis thing. But I don't think I'm alone in how we often do this, and particularly with this text. This particular text, 1 Corinthians 13, has been reduced really to the passage that's used at weddings... The passage that's on greeting cards when we want to express our love to someone, a a spouse or a a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever the case may be, it's reduced to that. And really, it's not about that at all. This passage is not about romantic love. It's about the church. 
Specifically, it's about how the church, the faith family of God, the body relates to one another. In the context of spiritual gifts, Paul's been talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about how all of us have been called to Christ. Those of us who have been called to Christ, all of us have been given spiritual gifts for the building up of the body so that the world might look in and see a manifestation of God. And here he comes to this issue of love, and it was never meant to be about romance. Well, the church in Corinth was a dysfunctional family, to say the least. They weren't relating to one another well. There was all sorts of sin that was present in the church at Corinth. There, was, uh, there were sexual sins. There were legal sins. There was class division. There was division based on other things. There were doctrinal division. People lining up behind their favorite teacher and, and segmenting themselves off from one another. The church at Corinth was dysfunctional, to say the least. And here, in this particular portion, some in the church were promoting the ability to speak in tongues as that one gift that was the best of all. That one gift that would distinguish someone who had that gift as being truly spiritual, whereas everyone else was less than. And there are still some today in various churches that still do the same thing. There were others in this church that they would say, oh, it's not tongues that's the supreme gift. It's prophecy. Prophecy is the supreme gift. And if you've got that, then you're really spiritual. Others were saying, no, it's knowledge. Knowledge is the best gift. And Paul wants to show them here. And he says in verse, chapter 12, verse 31, let me show you a more excellent way. So that's the title for this sermon this morning is A More Excellent Way. Let's look at this passage beginning in chapter 12, verse 31, and we'll read all the way through verse 13 of chapter 13. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This morning, I want to show you just a few things quickly. I'll get through as much of this text as I can. We may not finish it all, but I want to show you what's here without shortcutting what God has for us in this text. First off, gifts are to be desired. 
Gifts are to be desired. He says in verse 12, 31, or chapter 12, verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. I want you to notice there that Paul calls some gifts higher. What does he mean? Well, what he means is that not that some are like the Corinthians are arguing as the supreme gift. What he says is, look, go ahead and desire the higher gifts. Here's the, here's the higher gifts. The higher gifts are those that do more to build up the church. They do more to contribute to the building up of the church. In Paul's mind then, prophecy would trump speaking in tongues because everyone could understand prophecy and benefit from it, whereas tongues had to be interpreted. And if there was no interpreter, then the church didn't really know what was going on. So Paul's mind of higher gifts are those that build up the church. He goes on to talk about that in chapter 14, which we'll look at later, but he says exactly what I just told you about prophecy and tongues and love being involved. Well, why then, though, does he tell them to desire the higher gifts when he's just said in the previous few verses that God is the one who gives the gifts to whoever he wants as he chooses? Why is, why is he telling them it's okay to desire these gifts? Isn't that questioning God? Well, the answer is rooted also in the purpose of the gifts, which is to build up the church. For instance, let's just give you an illustration of this. If I need to cut a trench across my driveway, I have an asphalt driveway. If I need to cut a trench across that driveway, what kind of tool do I need? Probably asphalt saw or concrete saw or maybe a jackhammer to, to get across that driveway, right? What if I don't have those tools? I've got a few options. I can go out and buy one of those. I can go out and borrow one of those. If one of you has, who's, has what I need, I can go and ask you if I can borrow that. I can go out and I can rent the tool that I need. Or I can earnestly desire that tool as I'm pouring out all kinds of sweat trying to do it another way, a harder way, right? Like I'm, I'm there, I don't have the tool, but I'm just, I've got just a sledgehammer and I'm just beating my driveway trying to cut a hole in this thing. And I'm thinking, man, I wish I had the saw, right? Well, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that in the church, God is good and we must be content with what he gives, but there's going to be some things that we're going to come up on that we'd like to do, that maybe we feel God leading us toward, things to do in our community, or maybe things that come up in our congregation that we need to deal with, but we don't have what we need to be able to deal with it adequately. That in that moment that we should desire those greater gifts because in that, we know that God already has what we need and that he's anxious for us to ask him for it. That's what is said there in James chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Paul's not saying, hey, hey, begrudge God. Be discontented with what he's given you and, and go after those other things. Go after the ones that you want. And instead what he's saying is, look, understand that you can't do anything lasting for the kingdom of God if it's not given to you by God. So desire that he give you those gifts so that you may make much of him. We ought to constantly as a church be thinking and, and, and asking God, God, would you please send us more believers who are gifted in various and different ways so that we might be able to expand ministry to reach our community and to reach the nations with the gospel so that you might be glorified. 
There's nothing wrong with that. We ought to be saying, God, please send us more. This is not health and wellness. God, send me more of what I want. It's God, send me more of what would bring glory to you. I look around at this church and I look at the people that God has sent here to Abner Creek and how he's assembled this body. And it's amazing, isn't it? When you look around and you see the different talents and gifts and abilities that are represented in this body, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. We should never, though, get to the place where we say, we got it. That's all we need. Instead, we ought to do as much as we can through the power of the Spirit, through what He's given us, but all the while we ought to be desiring higher gifts so that we might go into new territories for the kingdom. Does that make sense? All right, so gifts are to be desired, but gifts without love are not desirable. Gifts without love are not desirable. In uh, in the second part of verse 31 there, he says to them, um, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he goes on in verses 1 through 3 and talks about these things that they are touting as being the supreme gifts. And he says in each of those, look, if you do these, if, if, I, if I do these, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I mean, Paul hits them where it hurts. He, he says at the close of chapter 12, look, let me show you a still more excellent way. And then verse, thir- verse 1 of chapter 13, he says, if I speak in tongues... Now, you've got to remember that this is being read aloud to this, the assembled church. And those probably standing there in the assembly the first time this is read, when they hear this and they hear, let me show you a still more excellent way, if I speak in tongues for a second, elbows going, smirks going. See, I told you tongues was the best gift, but he, Paul's going to prove it. You could also probably hear the gasp of air. As he goes on and he says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. He builds them up and then lets the wind out of them. Paul says, look, if if I don't have love, I'm nothing. Paul divides his argument into three different sources of pride. Particular sources of pride to the Corinthians. Gifts, knowledge, and sacrifice. And I would argue that those are three departments or sources of pride for us often as well. They were dividing themselves up in things like tongues and prophecy and faith. Things like knowledge saying, well, you know, I know a lot about God. I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And sacrifice, he says, if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned... There were those in Corinth who were clinging very tightly to these. Likewise, we often do the same thing. We make too much of certain things, certain gifts, certain knowledge, certain sacrifice. And we say, well, this will distinguish me. This will make me better. This will make me stand out. This will make me more acceptable and more pleasing to God in some way. We cling too tightly to these, thinking that somehow these will give us the good seats next to Jesus. But look at Paul's conclusion. He says, gifts not used in love are nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He goes on further, and he takes it one step further, and he says, I am a noisy gong. 
What he says there is, if, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, look, I'm nothing more than just a loud noise. I'm meaningless noise. A minute ago when we were singing and the, and the, the instrumentalists were up here playing, you know, you didn't per se just hear Ronnie hitting the cymbal over there because it blended well. It fit there. But if I were to pull that cymbal out here today and just, just beat it, just every now and then, just beat that symbol right in the middle of my preaching, you would think, that's weird. If I were to come up beside you and come right up next to your ear without you knowing, coming up behind you and like Barney Fife and Andy Griffith and just, you know, right in your ear, would you say I was being loving to you? This is Paul's point. He says, look, if I'm doing these things, these things are well and great. They're from God for a specific purpose. But if you're doing it without love, you're just a loud gong. You're just a clanging cymbal. Another interpretation of this might be that in the midst of worship, worship is meant to celebrate what God has done. And it often calls for loudness and joy to be expressed. And an alternate interpretation of this would be like someone there in the middle of just loud worship, just with a little piece of brass, just ting, ting, ting. It's not going to be heard because it's not fitting there. Paul says, look, if I have this gift but I don't have love, I'm nothing more than a noisy gong or a loud cymbal. Knowledge of the Bible, he says, or knowledge about God that doesn't translate into heartfelt obedience. What what was it that Jesus said? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. If, If we know all about him but it doesn't translate into change in our lives... We're nothing. Philanthropy and sacrifice, he says, if I give away all I have, if I give up my body to be burned without love, I'm nothing. D.A. Carson in his book points out, he says, that in these listings of five different things here, in this divine mathematics, five minus one equals zero. That you could take any of these five and take love away, and it equals zero. See, love's not just another gift that we can desire, but maybe we don't have it. It's not just one of the gifts that he's talking about here. See, love's not just a gift that we can desire. Love for the Christian is an entire way. It's a way of life. In fact, it is to be the mark that sets the followers of Christ apart. Regardless of our gifts, all of us should be known by our love. This is what Jesus said to the disciples in John 13. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you can't say to me today, You know what? Hey, I'd like to be more loving, but love's just not my gift. Because if you're a Christian here today, you have received the greatest love ever expressed and it will translate into you being a loving person one commentator said one can put on a show of love without having love but one who truly has love cannot help but show it that's true so gifts are to be desired but gifts without love are undesirable third is this love is what you really want Love is what you really want. And I want to walk through these 
descriptions of love here to give you a better picture of what love really looks like. Paul, notice, first off, before I get into these, Paul doesn't use adjectives to describe love. He uses 15 verbs. He repeats one of the verbs twice. You're going to count and you're going to say, well, there's only 14 statements here. He uses one of the verbs twice. There's 15 verbs here that he describes what love does. And this is going to sound cliche or bumper sticker or coffee mug, but love's a verb. Love just doesn't sit back in an apathetic non-caring way. Love is a verb. Love shows up. Listen to what love does. Love, first of all, is patient, verse 4 says. Commentators describe this as it performs the positive act of waiting. In times of suffering, it endures injuries without seeking retaliation. In dealing with other people, it realizes that, hey, they're not where they're going to be yet. How many times have you been in a church where someone has just said, I can't take them anymore, and they walk out. Look, we would be better served. We would be better loving. We would be showing the love of Christ if we would look at one another and say, look, yes, yes, he still has issues. Yes, she still is, has this issue with this. Yes, they do this. But look, they're not where they're going to be yet. How many people are patient with you? This is why 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Some of you are so ready to walk out and give up on brothers and sisters because they're just, they just they're a bunch of hypocrites. They don't seem to be where, where they ought to be. Well, be patient. Because God says what he started in us, he'll finish. If you're looking to me to be your you know, constant and, and forever like satisfier, like I'm always going to meet your expectations, man, you better get over it. Because many of you have already let down. And I will let you down again. And we will let one another down. But love is patient. Secondly, love is kind. It responds to others with the same tender-hearted mercy and kindness that we have received in Christ. It's been said that kindness is love in work clothes. I love that quote. Kindness is love in work clothes. It goes to work. It does what needs to be done to show love to someone. It does not envy. Love does not envy. It's not jealous because someone else has something that they don't. Kevin DeYoung, who is a pastor in Michigan, uh, said this in one of his sermons, preaching through this, this particular passage. He said, there's a lot of church growth taking place by envy. A lot of parenting by envy. A lot of dating by envy. A lot of spending by envy. You cannot love someone and at the same time wish to take from them what you desire. Love's not envious. Love doesn't boast, it goes on to say. This word boast is a word that means vain glory. It's like someone's always talking about themselves. You know, have you seen, there's a commercial on, and I don't know what it's for, but it's this, um, who's, who's the guy that plays the Clippers dunk all the time? Yeah, Blake Griffin, thank you. I knew there's a sports fan in the room that wasn't just tuned into football, but uh, Blake Griffin, there's a commercial with Blake Griffin who just dunks from from the heavens. I mean, he's just, he gets up there, you know, and there's this kid on the sidelines and they, they're trying to pick up another player for the, for the pickup game. And he says, uh, Hey, can you shoot? He goes, Shh. and he just 
shoots and doesn't even look, and it goes over the backboard. He goes, I don't miss. You know? You ever met anybody like that? That just, just fills themselves up, promotes themselves all the time, but it's vain. It's vainglory because it's empty. It's nothing because they really don't know what they're talking about. This is what it's saying here. Love doesn't do this. Love looks to promote others before promoting self. Love's not arrogant. See, love knows that it has much to gain from listening to others. Love is not rude. The word here probably in this context could be talking about sexual, uh, sexual sin. It could be talking about other behaviors that are just out of place and just wrong. I mean, this is certainly going on in the church in Corinth. If you want to know this, read chapter 5 where you see what's going on there in the church. But the point here is that love behaves rightly. That it's not rude. That it doesn't go against the truth. And instead it, it says, look, this is the truth and I'm going to line up under it. Love doesn't insist on its own way. A person who's loving is not always responding to people who want their attention by saying, what? Right? I mean, if somebody responds to you, what? Do you really think they're loving? Or do you think that you're in their way? Love's not irritable. It, it, love, love doesn't, it's not resentful. Um, it, it doesn't keep the books on evils that are committed against it. It's not always looking for ways to bring those things back up and saying things like, well, you know, you remember when. It's not, it's not constantly saying, well, I guess now you know how I felt. Love doesn't keep the books on evil. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. There's where he uses that verb twice. He's probably thinking of maybe the lawsuits that are going on among the believers where they're taking one another to court. And he says, look, love doesn't do this. Love doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing. Instead, love rejoices with the truth. It doesn't try to hide the truth. It doesn't lie. It doesn't go against the truth, nor is it offended or become irritated when it's confronted with the truth, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Then he says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The key word here in those, that little passage, that little section, is the word all. It basically means that love has no limits. This is what uh, a commentator said. He said, love has no limits. Love never tires of support. It never loses faith. It never exhausts hope. It never gives up. Now, This is what love looks like, and I went through those quickly, but in the context of the church, this is what love looks like. Now, how many of you, when I'm reading through those and I'm explaining those, are saying, man, I'm not very loving. There's times when I'm just not very loving. I think we would all fit in that category. Maybe at first we began to think of people that we know that fit those descriptions, but if we're honest, we kind of then have to look back at ourselves and go, you know what, I'm too often irritable. I, I, too many times I insist my own way. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. In fact, what Paul's doing it here is he's praising love, and at the same time, he's showing them how they're not loving. Look, look at what the Corinthians were actually doing. And I, and I just changed the wording here just to show you this in walking through the text, just inserting the Corinthians 
and how they were not being loving. Uh, let me just read this for you. They were being impatient and unkind, envious and boastful, arrogant and rude, insisting on their own way, irritable and resentful, rejoicing at wrongdoing and rebelling against the truth, bearing few things, believing few things, hoping few things, enduring few things. This is what the Corinthians were doing, and they should have looked in, particularly when they heard this read to them, they should have looked inside and saw this absence of love as a symptom, as a warning that there were some real serious problems in their midst. And we also, church, we should look inwardly and say, if we are not loving, if we are not marked by love, then there's some real serious problems going on here as well. That you should individually look. I should individually look at myself and say, am I loving or am I, a lot of times, the opposite of this? And we should heed these as warnings to us. In the same way that when that light comes on on your dash, you should heed that warning. And many of you have been riding around with that thing for years and you just, just left it on, right? But don't do that with this. Look, there may be some serious problems here. If there's absence of love, it indicates that at the very least, there's some deficiencies in our sanctification. At the very worst, it indicates that we're still lost. That there is no salvation, that we've never been saved. So heed the warning here of Scripture. None of us can love perfectly, just like 4 through 7 says. That's why we need to also read it another way. We also need to read it this way and look at what Christ has actually done. If you'll simply do this, and when you read through verses 4 through 7, and anywhere it says love, substitute Christ. Listen to this. Or or substitute Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Aren't you glad for that? Isn't that the gospel? In his leaving heaven and coming to earth, and also now, even as he sits at the right hand of God, he's bearing all things. How many times have you offended him? How many times have you, with your sin, attacked his holiness? And he bears with you. He doesn't get irritable. See, if you are trusting in your own ability to love others the way verses 4 through 7 describe, or if you're seeking to be loved perfectly by someone else other than Jesus, you're going to be miserably let down, miserably disappointed. Do you hear me? Because some of you right now are saying, okay, now I'm going to do this. I'm just going to go home. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm going to do this. I'm not going to be irritable. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be kind. And as soon as you try to do that, tomorrow morning you're going to hit traffic. Stupid people. Where'd they all come from? Don't they need to leave earlier than this? They're in my way, right? Or if, if you're looking for someone to love you perfectly, they're going to let you down. You're never going to find someone who's perfectly patient and kind and all these things to you. The only one that you ever will find that has loved you in this way is Jesus. God sent Jesus 
as the very icon, as the very image, as the very essence, as the very definition of love. The Bible says God is love, and who has shown it to us better than Jesus? Took nails through his hands and his feet, was beat for you, crown of thorns on his head, cried out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He he demonstrated and displayed for us love. Let me just close out by saying this. Love's what you want. Love, you'll only find love in Christ. Um, Verses 8 through 13 uh, today, I won't won't look at that. We'll look at more of it later on. But, But let me say this. If you're here today and you know that love is not present in your life, There's deficiency there. And it's it just pointing to the fact that you don't have Christ, that you've never received that love. Then today, I want to just invite you to turn from your sin, to quit trusting in your own ability, to quit looking for it somewhere else, and to trust Christ, to repent and to trust Him. You need to be saved today. Heed this warning. And then to the church today, I'll say this. Here's the application, church. Let's love one another. I could give you a million different ways that we could do that, but I might not hit what you need to do. Let's love each other the way this passage tells us to. Let's love one another the way John 13 tells us to, where Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Let's love one another. Sound good? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your love. God, we can honestly say here today, those of us who know you, God, that we love you because you've given us new hearts that are affectionate for you. God, you loved us first. Therefore, God, we can say we love you. God, I pray that in this place, in this time, God, that you would draw hearts to you. The people in this room would come face to face with their own sin, with their own deficiency. And, and God, that they would understand that there's nothing in themselves that they, that they can fix that with. But God, that today that you would show them their need of you. That you're the only answer. That you alone save, as Dee said earlier. God, I pray that we as a church, God, that you would make us a loving people. That we would be known by love. That we would care for one another. That we would not give up on one another. That we would be patient and endure with one another. That we would be love and work closed to one another. And God, that as that happens and you transform this church, God, that, that, the, that you would be manifested and that the, a watching world would be able to look in and say, They must really have a real God because that's not natural. God, I pray that you would do your will today. Be merciful and gracious in saving souls and building your church. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Ethan's going to lead us in song as we reflect on what's been said. You sit there and say, well, that didn't really challenge me today, but I got a sneaking suspicion that 
all of us, all of us know that we fall short in this area. So if there's some particular action that you need to take today, whether it's trusting Christ for the first time and calling on Him for salvation, then I'll be here at the front. I'll be sitting on this seat and just come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you and walk you through that. Today, if you're here and you just know, hey, I'm short in this area and I can't do this on my own, but Jesus has and I want to trust Him and I'm going to ask Him to make me more loving. Or maybe it's somebody in the room that you say, I just need to go and have prayer with them. Whatever it is, whether maybe God's saying, this is the church where I want you to join. Whatever God calls you to do today, we want you to respond in this time because the sermon is not complete until it is obeyed. So whatever God says to you today, say yes with an eager heart. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.